you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. You've heard President Biden make his pitch for a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. If it happens, we'll tell you how much of that big block will get chipped off for California. Plus, with LA County high-stepping it into the orange tier, it means a lot of stuff that wasn't open before will be open really soon. And on that list are museums. We'll talk to three of the biggest. It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I mean, Martinez. All right, good news for art lovers and really everyone just eager to have somewhere new to go. As much of Southern California moves into the orange tier, museums are getting ready to welcome back visitors. In fact, the L.A. County Museum of Art reopens today. The opportunity for reflection that you have just passing through a gallery and getting a chance to view a magnificent work of art is just something that you can't replicate on a Zoom call. Nope, you cannot. We'll hear about the impact of the pandemic and plans to reopen from LACMA, the Hammer Museum, and La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. Uh, But first, uh, President Biden has announced the first part of his $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. He talked about safe drinking water, upgrading schools, and broadband internet access. And he also talked a lot about transportation, from roads to bridges to airports. Much of President Biden's American Jobs Plan frames infrastructure through a lens of racial and economic equity as well as the environment. New rail corridors and transit lines, easing congestion, cutting pollution, slashing commute times, and opening up investment in communities that became connected to the cities and cities to the outskirts, where a lot of jobs are these days. For more on what Biden's plan means for transportation infrastructure, including California's high-speed rail line project, we have L.A. Times special contributor Ralph Fartabedian. Ralph, welcome back. Thank you very much, Ed. It's great to be back. All right. Now, before we get into what uh, the proposal could mean for California's transportation infrastructure, what exactly is outlined in Biden's infrastructure plan, and what would the money go toward? Oh, my goodness. You know, I counted up all the bullet points, and every bullet point is uh, pretty much all of them, and probably every single one is a multi, multi-billion dollar bullet point. There are 55 of them. Wow. So wow. Just, to, just to read the, the headlines on those bullet points would take more time than we have, but it's all over the map from getting rid of lead pipes to improving waterways and airports and uh, investing in EVs and uh, the grid and uh, VA hospitals and community colleges and schools and industry and R&D. You know, that's yeah. just a, a thousand, a 50,000 foot overview. And safe to say a lot of that will create jobs. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, you can't spend that much money and not create jobs, it's going to create a lot of jobs that we don't. And if it's spent right, I guess it would uh, make us significant um, reduction in unemployment. Now, Ralph, Biden's proposal also addresses climate and racial inequities. Tell us a little bit about uh, what he meant with that. Well, I think um, every program he wants measured through 
at least through one lens that would address uh, climate change and another lens um, in which it would measure whether it uh, contributes to reducing inequalities uh, racially. Um, and, you know, I've talked to um, people in, in the engineering and construction and infrastructure industry and in their discussions with uh, federal officials, that's really front and center. That's what the federal officials want to know. How will this program or that program address these objectives? And I know Joe Biden keeps saying that he doesn't want to raise taxes for people making less than four hundred thousand uh, dollars. How is he going to pay for this? Is it going to be corporate taxes? Yeah, they want to raise the corporate income tax. I think twenty-eight percent. Uh, there would be uh, much higher um, tax rates on um, individual uh, individuals uh, at a certain income level, and um, I uh, probably will be some sort of enhanced transportation tax, maybe replacing some or all the gas tax with a vehicle miles traveled tax that would okay. finally tax EVs for their use of the roads. Now, Ralph, the proposal plans to invest $621 billion toward transportation infrastructure. How will that money be divided up? Yeah, well, there's um, <laughs> there's roads, obviously, and bridges. I think they talk about 10 most significant um uh, bridges in the nation that need uh, remediation being uh, dealt with, uh, many hundreds of smaller bridges, uh, improving roadways. We're not going to be building, this is obviously not an interstate building program. Um, nobody's talking about building any new highways. Maybe some of the highways would get improvements that would add capacity. There's transit, there's rail. Uh, there's electric vehicle money, et cetera. In California, Ralph has a lot of all that stuff, <laughs> a lot of roads, a lot of highways, a lot of rail. Um, yep. Any idea of how much that money might come California's way? Well, it has to be significant just based on, you know, our role in the national economy, our productivity, our population, our size, uh, all of those, you know, and clearly we're the most populous state with have the biggest economy. Uh, I don't think that um, the formula is going to uh, be applied that way, but at the end of the day, it's probably going to come close to a proportional share. Talking to Ralph Vardabedian, national correspondent for the LA Times. All right, now moving on to California's high-speed rail project. That is uh, your beat, uh, Ralph, in in a lot of ways. We checked uh, in with you back in November of last year to see what a Biden administration could mean for the project, and now here we are. Uh, First, though, where does the project stand now, and what's changed? Where does the the project itself? Well, uh, not much has changed since November. The project is still, um, the goal is still to build a 171-mile um, partial operating system in the Central Valley running from Bakersfield to Merced. It would not, back then it was estimated to cost $20 billion, $20.4 billion. Now it's over $22 billion, so $2 billion increase two years later than expected in November. Uh, and uh, it would supposed to serve... Uh, the Central Valley and have a connection on the ACE train that where people could stop in Merced, get off the bullet train and get on um, a commuter rail yeah. operated either by ACE or the San Joaquin uh, Amtrak system and get to Oakland or San Jose. Because in the, in the latest story, you wrote about how there could be now a two-year delay on the delays that have already been layered onto this project since it started. So what, what's going on with another possible delay? Yeah, well, I've, they um, they received the High Speed Rail Authority received a letter March 9th from its main contractor, building 65 miles of structures in um, Kings County, and said that um, you know we're not going to be able to be finished with our work until 2025. Um, we know we said 2023 before, but that's two years and. Uh, the reason they laid was mostly the problem still with getting land available wow. and the rail authority's inability to accurately forecast when land will become available. 
Ralph, you and I have talked about maybe one day riding on this bullet train. I don't think we're going to be alive. Maybe our ashes will uh, make that ride on the bullet train at some point. But the crazy thing about this, and you wrote about this, is that the the it's been scaled back. But the original San Francisco to L.A. component was supposed to be done by 2020. That's right, um, at $33 billion. And that's what voters were told in 2008 when they approved, narrowly approved, but approved, a $9 billion bond, which was supposed to pay for a third of the system. Wow. So then going back to the Biden infrastructure proposal, could any of that money help speed up the process? Maybe a little extra funding could help uh, move the needle faster. Yeah, the Biden plan, the Biden plan has $80 billion set aside for freight and passenger railroad. They don't say how much it would be apportioned to each, and I've asked for some breakdowns. I haven't heard any information. It does may not exist. So probably, to some extent, they were just spitballing a figure out there. Um, and but at eighty billion, let's just say most of that went to passenger rail rather than freight because the freight railroads are private enterprises and they have enormous capital budgets on of their own. Um, their infrastructure is in very good condition compared to public infrastructure in many cases. But let's say most of it went to, to um, passenger rail. Um, let's say we got 10 to 15 percent of, yeah. of that. Um, that's about um, six, uh, six to ten billion dollars wow. to nine billion. Um, and that would be for freight too. Let's say uh, five to eight billion of it was for passenger. Well, Ralph, I think it sounds at this point that your urn and my urn will be making this ride in twenty ninety nine or something like that. That's a Ralph yeah, Bartobedi. No, that's not going to pay for. That's not going to bail out the short. Yeah, it would help. I, I don't mean to be pessimistic here. This yeah. continues. This will be a help in con- not shutting down the program and not falling short. That's Ralph Artabedian, special contributor with the LA Times. Ralph, as always, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, A. All right, it's uh, not an April Fool's joke, uh, not today at least. All Californians 50 and older are eligible for the coronavirus vaccine. And by April 15th, everyone 16 and older will be eligible as well. Now, it's definitely exciting news, but with doses still limited and logistics, such as transportation to consider, it's best to have a plan before getting your shot. KPCC community engagement reporter Carla Javier has put together a guide to getting vaccinated in California, and she's here to tell us all about it. Uh, Carla, welcome back. Thanks so much, Jay. All right. So what are the important things for people to keep in mind when making a plan to get a vaccine? Well, first thing, you might have to be patient uh, because you might not be eligible to find an appointment immediately, even if you are eligible for the vaccine itself. You might be able to find that appointment. Like in L.A. County, for example, 1.4 million Angelinos, 50 to 64, have not gotten a COVID-19 vaccine yet. And while supply is expected to increase, it's still not enough to vaccinate them all immediately. Plus, in just two weeks, another 3.8 million Angelinos, 16 to 49, who haven't been vaccinated yet, will also become eligible. So, Carla, what's your advice then for people trying to find an empty appointment slot? Well, you can check with your own healthcare provider if you have one. Another place to start is a site called MyTurn, which is the state's booking portal. That's myturn.ca.gov. There they list many of the providers all in one place, and you can search in 12 different languages and by zip code on there. They also have a hotline in case you do not have access to the internet. That number is one 833 Five five. Uh, you can also check with your own public health department if they have their own booking site in LA County. That's vaccinatelacounty.com. And you could also go to individual provider websites. So the city of LA uses one called Carbon Health. Uh, many of the pharmacies and some health providers like Kaiser Permanente also use their own sites to book. And I know I just said a lot of things. It's a lot to keep track of. So we gathered that all in a checklist on our website at laist.com slash VAX plan. And you can also find that hotline number I mentioned there, too. And that's LAist.com slash VAX plan. Now, uh, Carla, you spoke to a vaccine navigator about this. Uh, What are her tips for finding an appointment? 
Yeah, her name is Candace Kim, and she volunteers to help people who can't find appointments. She gave me these two really great tips. The first one, A, is to just keep checking throughout yeah. the day. Sometimes appointments go up at really weird hours. Sometimes people cancel. So you might be able to scoop up one of those. And the second tip applies if you live in an area among the hardest hit by COVID-19. Those are the places where officials are really targeting their efforts. So there are probably mobile clinics or other opportunities specifically for you, your neighbors, and your community. And you can check in with your local elected officials or trusted community organizations to learn more about those options. Mechanically, Carla, it's almost like checking on an eBay bid, right? You got to just keep checking yeah. and keep checking and Refresh. Yeah, make sure you don't get outbid. All right. So let's talk about uh, actually getting to your appointment uh, once you get one, because not everyone can access a vaccination site by car. So what are uh, people's transportation options if they do not have one? Yeah, that's a really good point, A. It's really important when you're making your vaccine game plan to consider how you're going to get there because some of them are actually drive-through only sites. So if you don't have a car but do take public transportation, you'll want to make sure you pick a site that's transit accessible, like the mass vaccination site at Cal State LA, which is accessible by Metrolink. And some providers can help you get a ride or a ride share or a bus or another way to get to their site. In LA, you can learn more about those options by calling the county hotline. And we have that number and all the different details, again, in that guide on LAS.com. What should people bring with them to their appointment? Well, you'll need to bring and wear a mask. Uh, you'll also need some forms of identification that prove you're eligible. So that means a photo ID with your name on it, something that proves you live where you want to get vaccinated, and something that shows your age. So a driver's license would work for all of those, but if you don't have one, that's okay. You do not need to have government-issued documents. You are eligible for these free vaccines regardless of your immigration status. So you could instead bring something like a postmarked letter or a utility bill to prove where you live or medical records that show your age. You should also try to um, wear something that'll allow for easy access to your upper arm and bring fluids with you. It'll be really important to stay hydrated. So tank tops encouraged. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. So what should people know about getting their second shots? If you get a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, that will require two doses, three or four weeks apart. Some providers will let you book both of those appointments ahead of time, but if not, be sure while you're at that appointment to ask how you get that second dose. Now, what should we know about the side effects or the after effects? Yeah, you may experience some mild side effects. Those are like soreness, tiredness, maybe a fever. The CDC recommends like moving your arm around if you can, maybe putting a cold washcloth there and staying really hydrated to help with those. Those mild symptoms should go away after a few days. If they don't or they're more severe than what I just described, mm -hmm. you should definitely seek medical attention. We're talking to KPECC community engagement reporter Carla Javier about what you need to know about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, even after people are vaccinated, can they still get or spread COVID-19? Carla, what should people continue to do to prevent this? Yeah, it's really important to remember that the protection from COVID-19 takes a while to build up in your body. So if you get a Pfizer or Moderna shot, you are not considered fully vaccinated until two weeks after your second shot. And if you get Johnson & Johnson, which is a one-dose vaccine, fully vaccinated two weeks after that one shot. So in the meantime, you will still need to take some health precautions like masking up and keeping, you know, your six feet of distance. How are we doing in terms of getting people vaccinated so far? I mean, what are the latest numbers from the state and the county? Well, Governor Gavin Newsom actually gave an update on this this morning right after he got his own Johnson & Johnson shot. Take a listen. We've come so far together and we're this close. 18 plus million vaccine doses have been administered in the state of California. As for the county, the Department of Public Health says that more than 4 million doses have been administered here. All right. Now, so much of this going forward seems to be dependent on supply. Will we be able to get enough to accommodate everyone eligible in April? Well, vaccin vaccinations will probably continue past April. A uh, L.A. County Department of Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer shared some of the projections about just how long it might take. Here's what she told reporters. If L.A. County receives on average 576,000 doses a week, 
starting in April, we can expect to, re- to reach 80% vaccine coverage for people 16 and older in just 12 more weeks. So that could mean 12 more weeks, that's like the end of June. So that's something we'll keep watching. But I also want to mention something that has really stuck out to me while covering this, and it's something Ferrer said yesterday, that yes, that projection is dependent on a lot of factors, but if the supply really does increase and more people really are able to get vaccinated, she said that can make a big difference. It would dramatically change the trajectory of the pandemic here in L.A. County. So that's something to keep in mind, too, eh? All right. That's KPCC community engagement reporter Carla Javier. Carla, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Last year, right around this time, I planted some perennials, you know, gardening to pass the time during the pandemic. I watered them with love and water. I put water on them, too. But the point is, I cared for them until the July heat wave just sucked the life right out of them. And it made me feel like I wasted all that water. And considering how dry California is... Maybe I shouldn't have watered or planted to begin with. We'll find out more about whether you can plant a garden in 60 seconds. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. It's April 1st, which means that it's the end of California's rainy season. And it's the perfect time to kind of look back at the past four months to see how we're doing in terms of water throughout the state. KPCC's science reporter Jacob Margolis is here to tell us all about it. Uh, so, Jacob, how did we do this rainy season? Uh, Not good, eh? We saw only a few storms between December and March, with the biggest one coming in late January, which helped but did not fix everything. Really, though, if you want to see just how bad this rainy season was, look outside. I'm in the San Fernando Valley, and there's smoke in the air because it's burning over in Simi right now. The hills are completely brown. You know, fires have been popping up really all through winter, all of which makes me nervous for fire and for water availability. I dread asking this next question, but how are we doing in terms of how much water is available? Yeah, last year was dry. Uh, This year's dry, which means we're likely in our second year of drought. And it's in the second year of drought that you start to see impacts. So our largest reservoirs, Shasta and Oroville, for instance, are about 40% below their historic averages. And the snowpack up in the Sierra, which feeds those reservoirs and keeps landscapes moist, you know, gives us our water, is only at about 61% of where it should be, since we're not likely to get much more precipitation until next winter. Like, this is what we got. Now, I double dread this next question, Jacob. So this dryness, how's mm-hmm. it going to affect the fire season? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's it's burning not far from me right now. And I was hopefully not going to have fires near me for quite some time. But uh, to put it in context, I'll explain how things usually play out during a normal rain year. We get rain from December to March. It keeps things wet until about June or so when grasses really start to dry out with the heat. Then we start to see grass fires, but they're usually easily stopped because big vegetation is still wet enough that it's not going to burn easily. But by late August, the big stuff is starting to dry out because of our brutally hot summers, so it's at risk of burning. And it's really crispy when the Santa Ana winds come along in September and October, which is when we see our big unstoppable fires. I will bet that these fires, like what we're seeing right now, are going to pretty much continue until, uh, you know, the, the, the ones that concern me the most are going to be the ones that come along, especially when we have strong, especially when we have strong, sorry about that, strong wind events. And I have to mention climate change is playing a few key roles here, too. It's making temperatures hotter, which is drying out things faster. And it appears to be pushing our rainy season later and later. So the time for fires uh, is getting longer and longer. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I was 
hopefully I was looking forward to a few more months without having to breathe smoke. Yeah. So how should people prepare then? Uh, in terms of water conservation, do the usual stuff. I think we already do a pretty good job at that. Low water appliances and landscaping, uh, con conserving where you can. In terms of fire, uh, get ready now. Start scheduling the clearing of vegetation around your house if you live in a fire-prone area. Get your go bag ready in case there's a red flag event and you have to flee in the middle of the night. It could very well happen. Um, you know, digitize all your documents in case you lose your home. Uh, just make sure you have everything in order. And I know, like, literally right now, after I get off with you, uh, I'm going to be looking at buying more air purifiers for my house because I have kids. Smoke can do irreparable long-term damage to all of our bodies, especially theirs. And, you know, I don't really want to be struggling when it's tough to breathe. Jacob, one more thing really quick. You mentioned clear out vegetation. I mean, I got a couple of fruit trees in my yard. They're healthy because I water them. But considering mm -hmm. our watering situation, should I even do that? Uh, I think that knowing your house, I think you're probably going to be okay. I would say folks, especially up in the hills, should be clearing grasses. Mm. Uh, there's a certain size defensible space that they should maintain. You can go over to Cal Fire's website. I think like LA County and LA City Fire also have some resources, and we do as well on las.com. And it'll tell you like what you should clear and how far stuff should be away from your house. All right, that's KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis. Jacob, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. We turn now to Joaquin Esquivel. He's chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and he joins us now for more on the state's water supply. Uh, Joaquin, uh, welcome back. Uh, great to join you, eh? Now, we just heard from our science reporter, Jacob Margolis, uh, the 2020-2021 winter rainy season was a disappointment, leaving us uh, with really insufficient Sierra snowpack, Sierra Nevada snowpack, and, and very low reservoir levels. So what does that season mean for how the state manages water resources? Yeah, I think it, it really manifests itself in, in a number of different ways. Um, you know, one, we had recently the State Water Project announced that they were going to reduce their allocations from 10% to 5%, uh, given how, how dry uh, the, the water year has been. It's important to note, I think, there that um, their allocations are usually pretty conservative at the start of the water year. So I think it really does speak to, um, even though we had a few dustings of snow, and that includes you know, uh, today, actually, the Department of Water Resources uh, surveyed uh, Sierra Snowpack and found there to be, um, I think it was 68% or so at Phillips, uh, um, Sierra wide, but Phillips Station had a little more. But I think that speaks to um, sometimes the uh, variability geographically, we'll see drought uh, impacting the state. Well, again, generally, what is the state water board strategy for drought prevention? I, I got to imagine this extreme weather that we've been going through for the last few years might factor into that. Definitely. I think what we are, our principal strategy is that the, the, the things that we do that matter the most are really outside of drought years. And so, you know, their conserving is really uh, key. And I would actually note that since the last drought, uh, Californians have continued to conserve about 16% compared to previous drought. So, you know, what we've really done is responded on the conservation side. Uh, so that's proven a real key, but we also need to be making investments in our watersheds. There, it's you know doing better stormwater capture uh, for the when those times that we do have water, so that we're we're moving it, capturing it, and putting it to use. But also water recycling, and so uh, it's a it's a really as we say in, in the Newsom administration, a, a, a portfolio approach to water resiliency in the state, which includes uh, resiliency to, to floods, and really you know the policies that you have in those times when you you have water are what build up your reserves and help you and help us all, all uh, collectively manage through dry conditions. How are California farmers being impacted by this dry season? They're being impacted uh, definitely insofar as reduced surface uh, 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 water uh, deliveries. And there we saw the Central Valley Project, which uh, mainly delivers to agriculture, um, signal that the 5% allocation, which is incredibly low for the project, and this is uh, mainly south of Delta uh, agricultural contractors um, uh, is you know, on hold, meaning that um, they can't call that 5% yet. And uh, barring some real change in, in hydrologic conditions, um, that, that is likely to then uh, be at zero. So with zero surface water supplies to some ag interests, uh, they'll be going to groundwater uh, supplies. And, uh, and there, you know, always uh, definitely have our eye on implementation of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act which, you know, was a policy advancement from the last drought. Really, you know, we have to better manage our, our groundwater supplies to get us through these dry periods. Um, but the concern is that these dry years are really off the backs of uh, what was a historic drought, not, you know, five, six years ago, uh, but a few years ago from 
that last drought means that in some ways we're really still uh, recovering from uh, that historic drought where we have some communities that uh, never uh, recovered um, drinking water wells uh, and are still uh, uh, having water hauled to them. How difficult is it, though, or maybe uncomfortable is a better word, Joaquin, dealing with farmers on this? Because, you know, I, I'm not, they need the water, but you can't magically make water. It's um, it, as we saw in the last drought, um, the it it is a, a very difficult uh, thing once you're in the teeth of dryness to ameliorate. Um, and it is, although you know, we try to get resources, um, emergent you know dollars to communities to try to help with the economic impacts that happen, particularly in our rural communities uh, because of these dry conditions. But um, yes, to your point, um, it it is it is hard. Um, there is there is a deeply emotional and and human. Yeah. side of drought. And it, it really does manifest uh, strongly in, in our, our, our agricultural and rural communities who are so dependent upon uh, surface water deliveries and, and the management of, of, of water here. So on this, when it, when it comes to community involvement with water, you know, water infrastructure is overseen by a handful of different agencies from the federal to the state and local levels, and oftentimes either competing for resources or disagreeing on strategy. So how much progress is then slowed by internal disagreements? Yeah, it's a good it's a good insight. I think you know when you look at the water sector writ large, unlike other sectors like transportation or energy, um, it is very disparate. Um, water is is governed uh, very locally. Uh, we know even invested very locally. Eighty five percent of most of our our investment in water management happens at the local level. It's ratepayers who are part of drinking water agencies that you know then then magnify up to these great uh, state water projects that move water around and help you know. Create to this, uh, create this incredible economy that we have, mm. this fifth largest that we know, et cetera. Um, but that there are challenges, and certainly uh, that that disparate sort of decision making sometimes makes it difficult to make the sort of watershed wide investments yeah. that we really need that build drought resiliency. That's State Water Resources Control Board Chair Joaquin Esquivel. Joaquin, thank you very much. Thank you, Ak. More take two coming up in just a few minutes. Stay with us. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lemert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. You can feel it in the streets On a day like this day It feels like summer I feel like summer Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. Museums in Los Angeles have officially received the green light to reopen at a limited capacity. LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Art, opened its doors today, actually. But many museums have been closed for much of the past year. Now, as we reflect on the year that was and look ahead to the summer, we've asked a few museum leaders to join us and fill us in on their experience the last 12 months. Joining us today is Michael Govan, director of at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA. John Echevesti, CEO of La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in downtown LA. And Scott Tennant, he's Chief Communications Officer at the Hammer Museum in Westwood. Welcome to all three of you. Now, starting with you, John, it's been more than one year since uh, California's shelter-in-place order was issued. How did La Plaza de Cultura y Artes respond to the news that it had to close its doors? It was bad timing for us because uh, we were about to open a major new exhibit uh, on the night that the uh, uh, lockdown went into place. And that was an exhibit with uh, Carlos Amaraz, one of our more renowned Chicano artists. Um, so we weren't able to uh, hold an opening reception for that. 
And that exhibit has been on our walls now for a year. Uh, and I think we've had maybe 12 people at the most who have seen it. So what we did is we went virtual and we did a uh, a live stream walkthrough of that exhibit with the curator the night that we were supposed to do the exhibit. Oh, wow. And that's been what uh, we've been doing since. We've done a lot of programming uh, on a virtual basis. We do a program that we air or we stream three times a week. And uh, we've also converted many of our exhibitions uh, to virtual platforms as well. Michael, what about LACMA's experience with the year-long closure? How did you all adapt to all the changes? It's, it's been a very, very tough year. I mean, it's, I think for everyone, especially, I mean, there's the financial losses, but it's the sense of purpose. You know, we're so designed to want to bring art to the public and not be able to do that in that real way has been difficult. But of course, we pivoted like everyone else. A lot of our constituency are our schools, families, and students. We're in a lot of schools. And of course, that was also stopped at that point. So in that case, a lot of our teaching artists uh, went into their kitchens <laughs> and started developing their lessons uh, on their phones for video. And so we've released dozens, actually, of these make art at home videos in seven languages, I think. And, you know, that's a Good thing that came out of the pandemic. Those are evergreen. They're they're good forever. And I think we're learning to use the digital uh, realm, which we hope will hang on to as we go back to real uh, to real school. I love it how art and artists find a way. Uh, Scott, for the Hammer Museum, I know the Westwood Museum uh, had its Made in LA Biennial uh, scheduled to open last summer. Uh, what were some of the challenges the Hammer encountered after having to close its doors? Well, similar to what both Michael and John are saying, you know, museums spend such a long time, years planning their exhibitions. And so being forced to suddenly close and then remain closed for a full year, it really creates a lot of complicated challenges. So our top priority really was just to ensure that Made in LA, our biennial, would be given its proper due. And for this edition of Made in LA, the plan had always been to present this exhibition both at the Hammer and at the Huntington. Uh, in San Marino. And the pivoting that we've all had to do <laughs> to keep this show on view, to give these artists their proper due, has been really just one miracle after another. And and John, you know, Michael mentioned the financial hit that museums uh, are, are taking or have taken over the past year. When it comes to staying afloat financially, how were you able to, to, to do that uh, and, and maybe secure any help uh, from other sources? Well, we were able to secure a PPP loan, which was very helpful, and we just also were approved for our second uh, second loan there. That's been extremely helpful. We're also very grateful for our members who have, who have stuck with us and been supportive. And we have been uh, scrambling for uh, new grants and relief funds wherever we can find them from private and, and public sources. Uh, so fortunately, we've been able to to maintain our, our staff, you know, we're a smaller museum with a smaller staff. We have about uh, 26 people on staff, but uh, we've been able to keep them all on board throughout the, the past year, which has been great. Scott, what about you and the hammer? You know, financially, it's it's been a challenge for all museums, right? But the good news on the hammer side, I suppose, is that we don't rely on admission revenue. We're a free museum. So we didn't take that revenue hit. We've managed to survive this year, much like John said, with a PPP loan and also the dedication of our of our donors and our members who have, who have stuck with us. And Michael, what about uh, LACMA? Yeah, it's no different. I think uh, John and I were talking the other day about also events. I mean, we rely on you know, corporate events, membership events, uh, fundraisers. Uh, those have all been impossible in addition to the admission. But of course, yes, we got a PPP loan. We've had very generous members, some emergency grants, even unsolicited from foundations. So we're, we prioritize our staff. We're, we're struggling through it and we're just hopeful that we can, you know, all bounce back. We had to cut a lot of costs as everyone did. You know, I think all of us too, during this pandemic, when, when life was restricted the way it was, I think evaluated what's important in our lives and what's important in our communities and in our society. I want to know from each of you where you think art fit in during the pandemic. Uh, Michael, let's start with you on that. You know, <laughs> art is essential. And it was interesting how that discussion played out. I mean, I, I, I think that in the middle of the pandemic, as other cities opened their museums and 
we weren't able to, we were, we were feeling that and trying to communicate not only that museums actually were a safe place to be, but it was that we are a public service. We should be on that priority list. We are essential to people's lives. And I think in crises, um, you know, people take stock of, of what's important. And I know from our constituency and from so many people that, you know, people have been missing art. They make, they can make art at home. Yeah. <laughs> there are other places, but it's, it really is essential. It was interesting to see who felt that in, in the crisis. Scott, what about you? That question about the role of art in our lives during the pandemic. For us, the, the museum, we value the role that we play for so many of our visitors, um, not just through the exhibitions and, and the works that we present, but also through our programs. We were happy to be able to pivot so much to online and really kind of offer opportunities for people to engage with us there. Uh, one of the most popular things we've done this past year has been offering online weekly meditation. And even, you know, in weeks like the week of the uh, election, the week of the insurrection at the Capitol, we would do online meditation and, you know, 500 or a thousand people would tune in and, that has been a really valuable thing for us. But on top of that, getting ready to reopen and walking back into these galleries, the feeling of calm, the opportunity for reflection that you have just passing through a gallery and getting a chance to view a magnificent work of art is just something that you can't replicate on a Zoom call. John, what about you with uh, people uh, from uh, La Plaza de Cultura y Artes? What were they missing about uh, about your place that maybe they never thought of before? Well, I, I certainly agree with, with Scott and Michael. We're a little bit different because we're also a history museum. So we tell important stories there that you know you don't always find in the classroom or, or textbooks or other places. So we, we had an exhibit that we had just opened three weeks before the lockdown on the Afro-Latino experience in Los Angeles, which was very timely. Uh, so we'll, we'll be extending that exhibition uh, for several months once we reopen. And we also had several other exhibits now that have been backlogged. Last August, we had planned to mount an exhibit on the 50th anniversary of the East LA walkouts, which was a very important moment uh, in the East LA community and its political development. Uh, so we'll probably mount that uh, in August of next year. So we we tell those important stories year round, and uh, you know we'll con- we'll continue to do that. We're talking to Lacma's Michael Govan, the Hammer Scott Tenant, and John Echevesti with La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. Uh, John, let's start with you on this. So, what are the museum's plans for opening up uh, back to the public, and and what are the safety protocols that are going to be in place? Yes, uh, we're targeting an opening date of April fifteenth. That's a Thursday. Uh, we'll also have uh, member previews uh, April eighth, so a week before that. Uh, we'll also be shortening our, our schedule. So we'll be open Thursdays through uh, Sundays initially. So we'll be closed uh, Monday through Wednesday. Um, we have uh, safety protocols in place that uh, we designed when we thought we, we were going to be able to open last June. So we're dusting those off and, and getting those in place. Uh, we've become what I like to think of as a uh, plexiglass fortress with uh, plexiglass and uh, signage and floor markers uh, throughout the space. So we, we feel competent that, uh, that we're ready to go and welcome people in, and it will be a safe environment for our staff and for our visitors as well. That's not an installation, John? A plexiglass, life through plexiglass? We might, yeah, you know, we might uh, do that, you know, uh, living in a plexiglass and Zoom world, I think is where we're at now. I'll be the artist to take credit for that, John, if you do okay, make that happen. It. Michael, what about you and reopening uh, LACMA? What's that going to look like and what's the timeline? We were ready to reopen actually in the summer. In fact, some of our protocols were used nationally to get other museums open. We we invested a lot. I mean, everything is touchless. You have to buy your tickets online. There are screening surveys, uh, of course, mask wearing, one-way traffic, social distancing, all enforced at the museum. We already have excellent air exchange systems indoors, but we upped that too. With And uh, we put touchless fixtures. You can't open a door or even the bathroom door to make the experience totally touchless. And the good part of that is that we know people are feeling safe in museums and can, again, make all those protocols work. We have six new exhibitions for everyone to see, <laughs> ranging from Yoshitomo Nara to uh, Vera Luter, who works with photographs, to um, Colleen Smith, local Los Angeles artist, Doho Sa, 
So there's a great diversity. Michael, one thing on what you mentioned when it comes to one-way walking, and this is not me ranting against the reality of life. I know the situation we're all in right now, but one of the great things about being in a museum is that you get to kind of linger and move back and forth and go back to something you just saw like a few minutes ago. Uh, how, how do you think that'll affect the museum-going experience? So that that is one of the costs. You You won't be able to do it in the same way because it's for the safety of others. We have big, wide open galleries and you can look from different directions. And again, I think uh, there's there's 100,000 square feet to see. <laughs> so if you're moving along, it's a different kind of experience. But that there are some trade-offs, obviously. We, we do have to keep people at a distance and we do have to make sure there are only a few people in each room. And we do have to make sure that traffic around the galleries is, is mostly one way. But I think that's a small price to pay for the safety of, of everyone. And I, I don't think the, the uh, experience will be too diminished. It will still be thrilling. Yeah, I think people would much rather have uh, LACMA open with restrictions rather than closed. I think that uh, is a trade-off anyone is willing to make. Scott, what about you and the Hammer? What are your hopes for the museum's uh, summer? Well, we're thrilled that Made in LA will be opening at both the Hammer and at the Huntington on April 17th. Um, we're taking a similar approach as John outlined. As we sort of ramp up to that reopening, we'll be open also limited hours when we first initially open. So we'll also be open Thursdays through Sundays to start. Time reservations will be in effect. Really just 40 people per hour at the museum spread across the entirety of the museum. So that sense of safety and social distancing will be there, but also the opportunity to kind of experience the art at a reasonable pace. That's Lackman Director Michael Govan, John Echevesti, CEO of La Plaza del Cultura y Artes, and Scott Tennant, Chief Communications Officer at the Hammer Museum. Uh, Michael, John, Scott, thank you very much uh, for giving us all the updates. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, coming up, we're going to stick with art, but not the indoor kind, the outdoor kind, as in in the Coachella Valley. That's right. Desert X is back. John Horn will tell us all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on LAist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home, so I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. Desert X is back in the Coachella Valley. The outdoor art exhibition happens every two years in and around Palm Springs. This year's edition features 13 installations broadly addressing issues such as immigration, land use, indigenous communities, and various political and historical topics animated by their site-specific desert locations. KPCC's John Horn brings us this slice of Desert X 2021. Jack Rabbit Homestead, a desert piece of land. That opening song by Claire Campbell and her band Hope for a Golden Summer is part of the soundscape for artist Kim Stringfellow's work called Jack Rabbit Homestead. It's a 112-square-foot cabin that sits on a small plot of dirt and gravel next to the Palm Desert Area Chamber of Commerce and not far from a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant and a Sprint mobile phone store. Stringfellow was inspired by Catherine Venn Peterson, who wrote about her own homesteading experience for Desert Magazine. She moved her cabin from Pasadena to Palm Desert in 1950. Inside the cabin's tiny single room at Desert X are a few pieces of furniture, including a writing table with a typewriter. And as you approach it, you hear a recording of Peterson's memoir. 
It was a rainy morning in January 1943. I read a small item in a Los Angeles newspaper stating that Uncle Sam was opening certain public lands in the desert for five-acre homestead leases. Jackrabbit homesteads, they were called. I lost no time in splashing across the street. Stringfellow lives in the desert, Joshua Tree to be exact, and she said Desert X installations can remind visitors that the Coachella Valley's history is complicated and tainted, that the ground underneath so many golf courses, resorts, and shopping malls once belonged to local tribes. It's a theme echoed by the artist Nicholas Gallinan's Desert X piece, a freestanding sign patterned after the Hollywood sign. Placed right behind the Palm Springs Visitor Center, as you enter town, it reads in massive letters, Indian Land. Now, the Small Tract Act um, enabled people to get five acres of land from the federal government that they deemed disposable. Well, you know, that entire region of Coachella Valley is actually Desert Cahuilla. You know, this is their homeland. So, you know, we often don't think about this in these settler dialogues about whose land was this prior. Other notable Desert X installations include Gada Amr's Women's Qualities, in which large steel planters spell out a series of words associated with femininity. The word strong, for example, is filled with white daisies. Xavier Simmons's piece, called Because You Know Ultimately We Will Band a Militia, is a series of political billboards along a busy road. One reads, California once tried to ban black people. For all of this year's messages about inclusion, many created by female artists, Desert X itself has been embroiled in controversy tied to repression, following its decision to partner with Saudi Arabia, a country that is not only hostile to artists and women, but also dissent, as evidenced by the state-sponsored assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. When Desert X announced its partnership for a Saudi Arabian show in 2020, several prominent artists, including Ed Ruscha, quit the organization. I asked Stringfellow about her decision to participate. This is about a single woman homesteader. Okay, in her late 50s, that was very, very independent. And we know during the mid-century, you know, that was kind of an anomaly in itself for her to do this on her own. She moved her own cabin, okay, from Pasadena on a flatbed. And I do believe that the arts can open up these conversations in these very problematic areas. So I think we do have to move forward in terms of these dialogues and look for ways to open doors to conversations. Desert X is free, although some installations require a timed entry ticket. It runs through May 16th. For Take Two, I'm John Horn in the Coachella Valley. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, you missed a good one. You really, really missed a good one. You should go wherever you get your podcasts and just download it. It's 49 minutes. You can listen to it as you do your afternoon or evening walk around the block, uh, and you'll be more informed. Your brain will be stronger. You can also find us on Twitter, at Take2. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. Marketplace is next. <laughs>